Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, before I get going here, uh, if you are a veteran or currently serving in the armed forces of the United States, would you please stand at this time? You may be seated and we thank uh, you for your service and we thank the members of your family for their uh, support of that uh, service. Uh, and so uh, every once in a while, uh, from time to time when I'm teaching a class or in a conversation with one of you, I am still asked the question, uh, do you believe the Bible is literally true? And uh, after all these years of living here in the DC area, I have come up with a uh, very political answer, yes and no. <laughs> yes, I do believe the Bible is true. It is God's word, it's God's truth, it's a lamp to our feet, it's a light to our path. No, in the sense that technically speaking, not every word of the Bible claims for itself to be literally true. So for example, uh, there are exaggerations in the Bible. They are known as hyperboles and other figures of speech that Jesus used in order to make a point so that you literally do not have to pluck out your eye if it causes you to sin. Otherwise, we would all be blind. Uh, and then sometimes there are passages that are best understood in the context of the original languages because uh, their meaning gets lost or changed in uh, the translation into English or Amharic or something else. Or it is better considered in the context of the history or the time in which it was written. Otherwise, you might actually be tempted to think that God might be okay with slavery because it is mentioned as a given in so many of the passages of the New Testament because that is uh, the world in which that first century uh, lived in where God is most certainly not okay with slavery. Also, as followers of Jesus, we look at the entire Bible in the context of Christ so that you don't have to keep any more the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament, even though they are there. They are in the Bible, but from them we've been set free in Jesus. While other passages uh, still apply to all people in all places and at all times. And who gets to decide which is which is what makes life a little tricky. And then there are parables, which are works of fiction. They're stories about people who didn't exist, things that didn't literally happen. But they were the ways in which the rabbis would teach the faith so that a person who never existed, an, an, uh, an event that never really literally happened, can convey the absolute truth of God. Hence my answer, yes and no. Uh, in fact, with, with respect to the uh, parables, uh, some of them are open to more debate and discussion than others. Some are easier to understand uh, than others. And so, for example, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus is speaking to uh, a group of people, uh, and that group includes uh, some who are 
irreligious, who disregarded the faith altogether. And then there are others who were hyper-religious, uh, for whom the faith was little more than a system of rules and uh, regulations. And so in order to reach the entire crowd, the whole one congregation, Jesus makes up a story about a prodigal son who represents the irreligious people who have disregarded their faith. And a self-righteous older brother who represents the hyper-religious people for whom it's nothing more than rules and regulations so that everybody has a place in the story. And then, of course, there is that loving father who cares for all of his children and wants all of them to have a place in the father's house so that, once again, a story that is not literally true conveys the absolute truth of God to people who are very real. Today's parable from Matthew chapter 25 is a little bit different. First of all, because it doesn't have a fairy tale ending, as you heard, and it comes with a, a warning uh, that we may not even like to hear, but we may need uh, to hear. And secondly, because unlike other parables, this one is still the subject of some debate and disagreement among theologians and, and interpreters of the Bible, which actually comforts me because, you know, no matter what I say, I can't possibly make it worse. But the real life context of this made up story is, as you heard, a first century Jewish wedding. And a real life first century Jewish wedding would begin with the arrival of the bridegroom at the home of the bride, after which a procession would form from the home of the bride to the home that the bridegroom has prepared for her, where the wedding celebration would get underway and it would go on literally for several days. And, and part of that procession included the bridesmaids, uh, who, uh, like today, tended to the needs of the bride, although back then, if you were from a, a wealthy family or of a family of some means, your bridesmaids were probably your servants and not your friends or your relatives. In fact, in ancient Roman pagan culture, the bridesmaid's role was to keep the evil spirits away from the bride. In other cultures, bridesmaids literally functioned as decoys so that uh, robbers and bandits would not steal the dowry that would be paid from the family of the bride to the bridegroom himself. But the other function of the bridegroom, or the bridesmaids, of course, was to be in that procession, and they were the bearers of the light in a procession that would begin after sundown. They were the ones who carried the lamps. And the word for lamps could signify an oil lamp from a home, or it could signal uh, a torch, a group of rags tied around the end of a pole or a stick and dipped into oil. But those torches only lasted for several minutes, which then required the bridesmaids to actually literally carry extra oil with them so that the light would continue to shine all the way through the procession and into the marriage feast. And so while the real life context of this made up story would not have been lost on Jesus' first century listeners, I hope it won't be lost now on all of you. But the story goes on and Jesus says that the bridegroom was delayed. Which also, it turns out, would not have been uncommon in a first century Jewish wedding, sometimes because 
everyone had not arrived, everything was not exactly in place, and so they would go into a holding pattern until everyone was there, which I can tell you still happens at St. Andrew <laughs> in many of our weddings. And sometimes the bridegroom was delayed because the negotiation for the dowry had not been completed. And it was still going on to the very last minute, and it held up the proceedings. Now, doesn't that give you a warm feeling in your heart? <laughs> anyway, Jesus says the bridegroom is delayed so long in this instance that the bridesmaids fall asleep until finally at midnight, or literally, it would say, in the middle of the night, they hear the shout. Here comes the groom. The wedding is on. At which point, uh, the bridesmaids get up, and half of them, that is five of them, realize to their horror that they do not have oil for their lamps. They do not have oil for uh, the procession. And in their panic, they go to the, to the bridesmaids who do have their oil and ask to, to have some of their oil, but their request is denied because, you know, if you just kind of think it through, if they would have shared their oil, then none of the ten would have enough to make it all the way through the procession and into the wedding banquet, which then requires uh, the foolish five to go looking for this fictitious all-night bazaar or a dealer of oil, which after they get it, they realize that they are too late. Procession is over. Marriage feast is underway. The door is closed. They don't need the light anymore. And the one who meets them at the door says, I do not even know you. And with that, the parable ends. Have a nice day. After which Jesus makes his point when he says, keep awake therefore, for you do not know the day or the hour. Now this parable, uh, as I said, is a little trickier than others like the parable of the prodigal son, for example, uh, because elsewhere in scripture, Jesus is described as the bridegroom. That is the bridegroom of the church, which is described as the bride of Christ. And heaven is represented as a wedding feast, the marriage feast of the Lamb and his kingdom, which has no end. Now, in this relationship, the role of the bride, that is the church, is to be faithful and loving and completely devoted to her bridegroom. And the role of the bridegroom is to serve and to give everything he has for the joy of the bride. And when that happens, whether it's husbands or wives, or it's Jesus in the church, the result is a relationship that's out of this world. The problem with the parable is that if the bridegroom in the story is Jesus, there is already a bride in the story, which raises the question, well then who then are these bridesmaids? Are they part of the family? or not? Are they included or are they rejected? Do they have a chance or are they doomed from the get-go? 
And if the oil in the story represents the light of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, and of faith that carries us through the procession of our journey through this world and on to the wedding banquet, then how is it that this oil could be purchased for money? And who are the dealers of this oil? And who is the person at the door that shuts them out? Is it the bridegroom or is it someone else? And so this parable turns out to be the subject of ongoing study, disagreement, and debate for which theologians and Bible interpreters continue to collect their paychecks. But one thing we all agree to, or at least most of us, is that this parable, this story, has to do with the second coming of Christ and what it means to be ready when the bridegroom returns. And if you hear that and you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm not too anxious about that because I think it's pretty unlikely that that's going to happen in my lifetime, you may be right. Because Jesus does say that the bridegroom is delayed, in this case, for a very, very long time. But that doesn't mean that it can't also apply to the last day of your life, to the end of your procession or your journey in this world. And it doesn't mean that it can't apply to some other moment, some moment of great loss or some experience when you have been plunged into the darkness and what it then means to carry the light of Christ through the darkness of this world and onto the wedding banquet. And so, you know, I think there's a chance that we may be overanalyzing this parable because that is what we do. But the point of the parable at the end of the day is very clear, and it's this one thing. Our role in this life is not to know the day or the hour when any of those things are going to happen. Our role is to be ready for them whenever they do. Which means walking by faith, living in a relationship with the bridegroom, staying close to the bride, keeping the oil of gladness and the power of the Spirit replenished in our walk with God, refueling, re-energizing, recharging, and trimming away whatever it is that dims the light of God in our lives. Our role is to be ready for the heavenly banquet by staying close to the word of God, the fellowship of his, his people, the light of Christ. And if that sounds like a warning to you, then Jesus is warning us because Jesus loves us like a loving parent would do for their child, like a loving spouse would do, like a loving friend would do. But even if you get the main point of the parable and you find that God may be speaking to you through one of those other details that are still being debated, I would encourage and invite you to just kind of go with that, enjoy that, and apply it to your life. Like the fact that like those bridesmaids, you and I have been called to be in service to the bride 
in love for the bridegroom. Because here's the thing, you can't love the bridegroom and not love the bride. Or like those bridesmaids, our call is also to bear the light of Christ beyond our homes, beyond these walls, out into the streets, the community, the neighborhoods of this broken world so that others will be attracted to him through us and they will join the wedding procession. Or the lesson of the wise bridesmaids who do not share their oil as a reminder to me that you cannot do somebody else's believing for them, but you can witness to them. You can shine the light in their direction. Or the lesson of the five foolish ones, as I have been thousands of times, that even then, there is a place where you can go. There are people around you who will help you at no cost to be refueled, to be replenished, so that your procession can be an exciting journey to a joyous occasion. And so one day, uh, some years ago, uh, I walked a bride down this aisle uh, to meet her bridegroom. And on that day, uh, she and I stood at the back of the sanctuary and we watched the procession go forward, including the bridesmaids. Until at one point, uh, she looked at me and she said to me, are you ready? You know, and I thought to myself, you know, it is I who should be asking this question of you. But the one thing that I learned in that is that whether I was ready or not, she was ready. And I said, yep, let's go. And off we went down this aisle so that she could meet her bridegroom. And together, they could be met by the blessing of the bridegroom of his church and the new life he has for all his children, married, single, single again. And so whoever you are, I am pleased to announce to you today that the bridegroom is coming for you and the wedding is on. And I would invite you to join in the happy, joyous procession, to use the light of God and the power of his word, his sacraments, his spirit, his fellowship, to join in celebrating your place in the bride of Christ, the church in love for the bridegroom, as we move together with grace and by grace to that happy, happy day when we enter in to the marriage feast of the Lamb in his kingdom, which will have no end. And that is the story for the 24th Sunday of Pentecost. Amen.